0: Well, let's look to this psalm together. I'm really excited at what God has for all of us this morning. I think this psalm, if we hear its message, is going to resonate with us. Just the other day, I was taking my children to school. I dropped them off at a a local Christian school. I have to be there by 8, and so I catch some bits and pieces of talk radio on the way there and the way back. And this is just one particular morning this week, just one morning, about a five-minute segment. And these were the the bullet points that the... uh, that the host mentioned. A Florida police officer shot and killed a rabid otter after multiple reports of people being bit and scratched. At least three victims were treated at a local hospital in Maitland. Week four of the partial government shutdown of the United States, 400,000 people are still without their paychecks. Mortgage payments are being missed and there's the threat of foreclosures. Florida State Highway Patrolmen are still looking for a white work truck with a ladder in the back that hit and killed a pedestrian on one of the ramps off of I-4. Six people were injured, uh, one killed in a shooting at 2 a.m. at a nightclub in Jacksonville. Terrible winter storm headed to the west. It's going to wreck transportation and bring frigid temperatures and freezing rain. A local man shot his pregnant girlfriend and killed her unborn baby and it's left the neighborhood shaken up and in terror. Just five minutes, guys. Five minutes of talk radio. And that's the narrative that I'm getting. As a believer of Christ, as a follower, I'm getting that narrative. And all of those things are true. I don't know that I need to know all of them, but all of those things are happening. And that's just the local and maybe just tidbits of national news. And I know you hear it too. And I know you see it. I know that The culture we live in is chasing us with these stories, these narratives. And if we're not careful, these things are going to shape our life. They're going to give us a perspective on the future, and it's not going to be a good one. We're going to be biting our fingernails, we're going to be nervous, we're going to be anxious, and we're going to be afraid. I meet and encounter so many Christians, and if they were honest, if they were one of those Christians that's really honest with you, and you said, how are you doing? You know what they would say? I'm scared to death. I'm just scared to death. I wake up with this apprehension and anxiety, this nervous energy that something, doom is headed my way, something bad's gonna happen. That's a lot of the Christians that I meet. And don't worry, if you don't hear it on talk radio, you can get their app, right? Or you can catch it on the local news or you can go to their website. Listen, our culture is chasing you with these stories. They're chasing you with their truth. But the good news is, so is God. God. God is chasing you with a much more powerful, much more truthful, and much more compelling story. And listen, God wants this truth, this story, His story, to shape your perspective on your life. He wants it to sh- literally shape your perspective. He wants this to be the lens, the, the goggles you put on, and, and view your future. And I really, that's, you know, this is, uh, see if I can get this to work today. The, this is not really a point. This is like a preliminary point, Okay. God is chasing us and pursuing us with his story and I love this and if you're not careful when you read the Bible you'll miss it you'll miss it because listen God gave us how many psalms how many psalms are there anybody know there's a bunch there's 150 psalms 150 psalms you know what one of the prevailing stories is and the messages throughout the psalms don't be afraid calm down child of God settle your heart relax not in a worldly way like get your essential oils. Not, I'm talking about that. I'm talking about take a deep breath and breathe in grace. And remember who is on the throne. You're not, right? Because we say that so often. Oh, things are out of control. Yes, they are. Listen to me. Yes, they are. And here's the caveat. They're out of your control. And that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. God loves you too much to give you something as powerful as control of your life. That's a myth. Safety and control are myths. That we need to do away with as soon as possible. So there's 150 Psalms. You know why there's so many? I mean, God could have given us one and said everything He needed to say and put like 80 verses in there. But He didn't. He gave us multiple Psalms. And listen, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to be misunderstood. Um, God like tailors His revelation for all of us. You know that? God knows there's... He knows there's people out there like me that love epic stories, So God gives us narratives. He revealed himself in a story. That's why stories resonate with me. That's why they resonate with a lot of people. Why is Lord of the Rings one of the all-time best epic movies ever? Because we are made in God's image, and stories resonate with us. We love them. Peter Pan. I want to live forever and be young, don't you? Beauty and the Beast. I want to wake up from an enchantment and somebody stand in my place and make me beautiful again, right? I mean, all these stories, if you look, there's... They're what C.S. Lewis and and J.R. Tolkien talked about, the true myth, right? Sometimes God gives us stories. He gives us narratives. Sometimes he gives us apocalyptic literature. Like if you're one of those doomsday preppers, that kind of thing, you know, uh, kind of thing gets you and resonates with you. He gives you some of those stories, like revelation. Or maybe you're more of a didactic person. You just need an epistle, right? I'm not saying that all of these things are only some are relevant to some people. They're all relevant. They're all infallible, and we all need all of them. But some of them resonate with us more than others. See, and I believe it's because of this. God is relentlessly pursuing us with truth. And every possible angle He needs to take, He will take. Because if you'll, if you'll look carefully, this psalm opens up uh, with a really neat confession. God is our refuge and our strength. But you know, not all psalms that teach the truth that this one does, they don't all open that way. Take, for example, Psalm 11. Have you ever read this psalm? This is the coolest thing in the world, and I promise we're going to get back to Psalm 76, but, but hear me out, because maybe this will help you as you read your Bible. Psalm chapter 11 is a conversation between King David and one of his buddies at maybe the local downtown Starbucks in Jerusalem, okay? They're just hanging out, having coffee. Things are bad. Things are really bad for David. Uh, he's getting chased by the government, okay? His, his throne is being usurped by his son, who's a rebel. Things aren't looking good. They're trying to assassinate him. So maybe they're in like a, a hidden Starbucks, an underground Starbucks. I don't know. But did you know this, this psalm starts out like this? David says, in the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. And then he looks at his buddy and he says, how can you say to me to run away? We, we, don't, we, we get all this high scholarly esoteric language, and sometimes we miss the simple truth of a psalm like this. This conversation between two people. They're arguing. David's like, look, dude, I'm not running away. This is my hometown. I mean, eventually he does, but this is different time, different conversation. He says, God's my refuge. I'm not, where would I run to? And his buddy says, look, you got to run away, David. You got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. And David says, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. See, it's assassination language here. To shoot shoot in the dark at the upright in heart, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David says, how can you say that to me? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Some people, a conversation like that resonates with you. Other people, other people, same truth, different Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Have you ever read Psalm chapter 2 and like tried to envision what's going on there? It's like one of these movies that doesn't give you any, uh, you don't wade from the shallow end into the deep end. You get thrown into the narrative from in, in the deep end of the pool. There's like sirens, machine guns blasting, you hear helicopter blades, there's war, there's screams, Ah! there's blood everywhere. That's how Psalm 2 starts out. Listen, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away. And then verse 4. But God, who sits in the heavens, is laughing. He's laughing at all of this opposition. It's futile rebellion. They're not going to get anywhere. He's on his throne. Do you see, though, two different psalms, same message, same message. God is relentlessly pursuing us from every possible angle. And, and why does he do that? Because he loves us and he understands us. And I'll say it this way, a little st- illustration. Uh, coming up on my 15th anniversary to my lovely wife. She's working in the back today. I'm glad because she didn't know I was going to share this. So before she was my wife, she was my fiancé. Before she was my fiancé, she was this really godly, good-looking girl who worked at the Christian bookstore and came to the college class that I taught at church. And I was just, I, I was, it really was love at first sight, I promise. And people were trying to set us up and everything, and I'm like, man, I really I really like this girl. And so I need to, to situate my life in such a way that I encounter her at multiple places and at multiple times. So I like stalked Sarah. I did. I promise you, I stalked her. I found out where she worked. I found out where she lived. I found out who her friends were. I even, man, I'm embarrassed to say that. I even wove my way into her family's life. Her dad's in here. Hey, pop, sorry. Now you know the truth, right? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like best buddies with her brother. I would show up at her job and ask dumb questions about books I didn't care anything about. Why? Wherever Sarah is, I want to be there. I want to intercept her. I want to invest in her. See, I'm committed to reaching her. That's what it was all about. And how did it turn out? Well, 15 years later, six kids later, I think everything, God's plan, sovereignly worked itself out. But you know, in a similar way, but a different way, God is relentlessly chasing us and pursuing us. He knows we think in stories, so He's going to give you a story. He knows you're into apocalyptic stuff. He's going to hit you. God wants this truth To deeply, deeply embed itself into your mind and heart. He does. And that's why every different place you look in the Bible, you're going to hear this. That's why the words, do not fear, you've heard it from professionals for a long time, 300 and something different times. The Bible tells you, do not fear, but it shows you and teaches you why you shouldn't in a variety of ways. And this psalm is no different. And that's why I love it. So. Um, God is chasing you with this truth. And listen, it's a better truth than you're going to hear on talk radio. And look, I'm not anti-talk radio. We need those things. I need to, we need to know what's going on in the world around us. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, once said, every Christian and every pastor should read the Bible and the newspaper, and in that order, right? Um, so don't be naive and hold yourself up in a cave and not understand what's going on. But listen, have a more compelling and more powerful story that's going to shape the way you view that news. It's like, oh, wow. Six people shot and killed. Wow, racial tension intensifies. Oh my goodness, government shutdown. Uh, Well, I care about those things and and maybe God's going to have me respond, but I'm thankful it's not in my control. It's in God's control. He's on his throne. He's got a plan. And I want to be a part of his plan, right? I don't want to try to manipulate people or events and try to change things. I want to just tether myself to the one who's unchanging. That's what this psalm is saying. Don't be afraid. And I know that, listen... Some people are Cool Hand Luke. I don't know if you remember that movie. Um, Like nothing rattles them, nothing disturbs them. They're chained and they're like smoking a cigarette like uh, Paul Newman was in that movie. I'm sorry, I'm not advocating smoking or anything like that. But you get the idea, nothing rattles them until that one thing rattles them. And everybody has your breaking point. Every single person in here, there's that one thing that's gonna rattle you. You may think you got your own little throne and everything's going well and then you get the phone call from the doctor, from just the checkup. Hey, look, eh, seen a lump that's kind of concerning to us, need to run some biopsies. And that's all it took for you. Or for you, you get your son or your daughter's iPhone, and you see what they've been messing around with. Right? Or, or, or you get the phone call like, look, man, I'm sorry, we're downsizing. We're downsizing right now. We've got to do some layoffs, and you don't have tenure. You've been here eight years. So then what? I know people that are close to me, that are a few decisions away from being homeless, and they love Jesus. I know people right now that are in the midst of being separated from their spouse. I know people that live paycheck to paycheck. I know people that are facing an incredibly burdensome diagnosis from a doctor. I know people that are single parents and they are literally wearied and exhausted and do not know how they can keep going on this way. And this is a psalm for them, and this is a psalm for you. So I don't know what it is, what your breaking point is. Is it parenting? Is it relational conflict? Maybe it's things outside of you, like a government shutdown, right? Or maybe it's just inner turmoil. You're seeing things about yourself, and it's wrecking you. Whatever it is, God has a truth, a truth that He's chasing you with, and he wants, you, he wants this to be your narrative. He wants this to shape your life and your future. So... What is the better narrative and a better truth that he has? Uh, well, that's our outline. Let me go back to it. Here's the three truths from this psalm that are better than the ones you're going to see or hear anywhere else. Number one, God is a better refuge. Okay, I don't know what your refuge is right now. Everybody has one. you got a place you go for shelter. I almost sang a song, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he's better. Whatever it is, he's better. Secondly, he's a better river. Uh, it may sound crazy, but you know there's that part in this psalm where it says, there is a, st- a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God satisfies you better than whatever it is you're trying to suck satisfaction out of. And he's a better ruler who saves you. Completely saves you from beginning to end. So that's the, those are the things that we want to see in this psalm, okay? Okay. Um, I have a pastor friend of mine. Let me back up a little bit. I have a pastor friend of mine and he has a son with diabetes. This guy is the most stable, strong person I've, I've ever met. Like nothing bothers him. And I was having lunch with him one day and he was telling me, he said, look, the insurance that I have is terrible. Um, and my son increasingly has these insulin needs um, and insurance is not going to cover the amount of insulin we, we, we need. And my paycheck and my wife's job's not, not going to cover it. He said, it's, it's really starting to disturb me, man. He said, you know, if my son goes such and such many days without this, he can die. He can die. I have to have it. And it's ridiculously expensive. And he's getting angry talking about the system and the big pharma and all this stuff. And he says, but I will tell you this. He said, if my son needs insulin and it's in such and such a store, I will go in that store and I will get it for my son, whatever it takes. And, and the more he talks, I'm like, man, this is really... He's the most even kill even-tempered guy, but it's, what, what was it? It's thinking of his son. It's like he's willing to like, put a ski mask on and get a gun and go get the insulin. I'm not kidding you. I mean, probably all of us would do whatever we had to do to save our, our son's life, but I left, that, I left the lunch meeting that day thinking, dang, man, this is like real life. What would it take to settle somebody's heart like his when you think about the insulin, you think about your insurance, you think about death and diabetes and, and all the other stuff. It's, it's the truth from... From this psalm. That's what it is. So, three truths here. Point number one, he is a better refuge. I know that's a long introduction, but it's worth it. I, I want you to know this, this psalm is important. <laughs> this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm, by the way, called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. You know, a mighty fortress is our God. We sing that song. That's just Luther rewriting this psalm in his own words. He's a better refuge. You know, it starts out God is our refuge. Psalm 2 started out with a question. Psalm 11 started out with a conversation at Starbucks. Psalm 46 starts out with a confession. Starts out with God and then goes to trouble. That's a good thing for us sometimes. Sometimes forget the trouble. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Go to God first and then we'll talk about the trouble. So he starts out, the sons of Korah, saying, God is our refuge. Don't you love the our? He's not a refuge or the refuge. That's true. He's our refuge. He belongs to us, not in a possessive way, but in a familial, intimate, loving, kind way. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know that word, that phrase means, a very present help in trouble? It means completely accessible. And don't you love that? It's not that God is, um, you know, a back pocket pastor. What do you need? What do you need? It's like God is here. He's with us. He's never distant He's never beyond the the realm of your hope and your need. He's very close. Therefore, we will not fear. So he starts out with a confession and a conclusion. God's a refuge. He shelters us. He's a place of... I don't like to use the word escape because it may mistranslate for you. Like you go and you hide from all the troubles of the world. It's, It's more of a shelter. He's a protection. God is protecting you. Not, listen, not from the trouble... But in the trouble, there's a big difference. There's a big difference of perception there. For the people that say, well, Christians never going to experience any trouble. Or they may have their own nuance of saying that. Listen, we got to be really careful, guys, when you say that or when you believe that. Because there's forms of that that I would call prosperity teaching. And all prosperity teaching is, is people making promises to you that the Bible never made. Okay? like God's church will never be persecuted. Uh you reading the same Bible I'm reading? <laughs> Eleven of the twelve apostles were martyred, man. And the twelfth one was banished to an island for preaching Christ. Apostles got sick. James got thrown from the top of the temple. And it didn't kill him, so he was clubbed to death in the streets of Jerusalem. We've got to be careful making promises to people that the Bible never makes. God never promised us trouble wouldn't find us. What He did promise us is something better, more securing, more compelling he will be with us in the midst of our trouble. Very accessible. Refuge. At any given time that we need it, right? That's what he promises. The Bible says, Job said this, man and woman is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. You go to a campfire and kick it in the middle of the night, out in the country where there's no you know, city lights and sparks fly up, Job says, yep, that's every human being since the dawn of the fall, right? We are filled with troubles, So God's not making the promise here that he's going to deliver you from your troubles, even though sometimes he does, and praise God for that. But the better promise, the more secure promise, the more compelling promise, is that he will be with us in our troubles. So this trouble, excuse me, this psalm says when trouble comes, not if. And it gives this picture of like cosmic disturbance. It's almost like an earthquake. Check this out. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. And by the way, there's that word Selah, you see that a lot in, in the book of Psalms. All that means, it's a musical, maybe, command that says, Duncan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, bro. Stop, pause, slow down, breathe, think about what you just said. Clear the distractions from your mind. Like, whoa. <laughs> God's a refuge. He's a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we're not going to be afraid no matter what's happening out there or in here. It's not going to overwhelm me. That's what, you know, that's what it means to fear God. It means to be more in awe and, and being overwhelmed at God than you are whatever else is overwhelming you. Like, you know, in the book of Mark, whenever the disciples are with Jesus in the boat and this big swell of a storm comes, they're scared to death. The Bible says they were, they were afraid. And then they saw Jesus walking on the water to the boat and it says they were greatly afraid. <laughs> Which one was more overwhelming to them? God was. And that's the way it should be. This storm's terrible. Oh, look, here's God. <laughs> I'm more overwhelmed with him. And then true change can begin, can begin to happen. No matter what is happening, and listen, I will be honest with you. And this may hurt a little bit. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't have God's secret notebook here. Why do certain trials come into our lives? Why do things? Why do cosmic disturbances come to certain people and not others? But I know this. I know sometimes God allows us to be shaken violently, okay, to test what our foundations really are, because He loves us so much. Psalm 11 says that. He tests the eyelids of man. You know God does that sometimes? If you are tethering your entire life to something that is very dangerous and anything other than God, if you tether your, it's like a car seat, you know, if you tether the car seat to your brother, it's probably not a good idea, right? you tether it to the metal frame in the van, right? Because whatever you tether your life and your hope to, whatever happens to that is, I mean, it's, I don't even need to explain that to you, right? Sometimes God lets you get shaken. It reminds me of a story of a very kind, loving, compassionate lumberjack. And he went out in the forest on a snowy day, and he was going to cut down this entire line of cedars. And this little bird, he saw flutter up and land in the tree he was about to cut down. And he said, oh, man, I love animals. That bird was building a nest up there. And he said, well, I can't let this happen. So he turned the blunt side of his axe over and starts hitting the tree. And the bird's like, what in the world? And eventually the bird says, forget it. And he flew off. He flew to the next tree. (laughs) The lumberjack's like, come on, you gotta be kidding me. So he walks over and starts hitting that tree, vibrating, shaking. And the bird says, what the heck? So he flies to the next tree in line and the lumberjack keeps doing this and eventually the bird says, forget it. And he flies up into a rocky mountain and makes a nest. And the lumberjack says, thank you, little friend. It's a much better nest than what you're gonna build in here. Sometimes God does that because he cares about us so much He doesn't let us build our lives and our hopes and our future and our securities on things that are going to be shaken so easily. So that's the confession. God is our refuge. He's our refuge. None of these other things are. And in fact, those things are a lot more volatile than you may even realize. They can be shaking up violently. And it can wreak havoc on your life. And this is really saying that God is sovereign. I know that's a word we don't hear much anymore, we don't even know what it means sometimes in America because we don't really have a, a picture of it with the three branches of our government. But if you were in Europe and you had a king, a monarch, you would get that. God is sovereign, unlike any earthly king, because there's nothing outside of His control. He is sitting in full command on the throne of heaven, and there is nothing that escapes His notice or His concern or His care. And that's a good confession. Spurgeon said this once. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Isn't that true? Man, to know that God is in absolute control and there's not what R.C. Sproul calls, there's not a maverick molecule or atom or electron anywhere in the universe that's outside of his power. And that is a good thing, beloved, because we want God in control. God cares too much about you, I said earlier, to give you something like control. If, we could, if God gave us control of our life, you know what we would do to it? Oh man, we would wreck it. And everybody else's too. So God says, it's much better if you just give me, yeah, just give me the, yeah, thank you, give me that crown back, give me my scepter, give me my throne, step back and relax. That's what this is saying. God is unchanging when everything else does. And you know, when he's talking about refuge, what you put your hope in, what your future is banking on, that's just another way to say this, guys, and I want you to hear me here, okay? It's just another way to say, what is it that you're worshiping? And now I'm getting into your kitchen a little bit, right? David Foster Wallace was an atheist who took his own life. He was a brilliant man, brilliant novelist, and you know a lot of people would say it was taken before his time. We don't know all the secret decrees of why he took his life. Um, but he did a keynote address at... at I don't know, Keystone College, I think, or or Kenyan College, yeah. And he, this is an atheist talking now, okay? And he said some things that are very profound. Sound almost Christian. This is what he said. He said, you better be careful what you worship. Everybody worships, this atheist said. Everybody worships. You get to decide who or what you worship, but you better be careful choosing it because whatever it is you decide to worship will end up eating you alive. It's interesting to hear somebody that's not a Christian say something that's a christian confession right that many christians wouldn't even acknowledge it sometimes and he goes on to say something like this if it's beauty that you worship you're going to feel ugly in the end right if it's your intellect and wisdom you're going to end up feeling stupid and foolish at the end if it's money and fame and notoriety and wealth that you're after you're going to end up feeling impoverished and ridiculous and made a mockery of. And it's true. Everything he says is true. He's just saying what the Bible has already told us, right? Whatever you tether your, your hope to, outside of God, listen, eventually those resources are going to fail you and betray you. That's why the Bible says, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's a good confession, isn't it? So, point two. Uh, First, why was the psalmist not afraid? I don't want to miss this point. Why was the psalmist not afraid? Because God's a very present help in time of trouble. That's his confession. And and the rest of this psalm will say that too. He was not afraid because he was more overwhelmed by the person beside him than the circumstances around him or the turmoil within him. Point number two. God is not only a better refuge, He is a better river. And this is kind of a strange turn in this. If you look at verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And then again, we get this, the nation's rage, the kingdom's totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that word fortress, it means this inaccessible okay you're at the you're at the top nobody else can touch you you're at a safe place beyond the reach of your enemies and and disaster and trouble but this is strange because we don't expect this here all of a sudden the psalm's talking about you're glad you're satisfied you're happy we don't always associate god is sovereign he's on his throne and i'm happy (laughs) but this psalm wants you to those things aren't mutually exclusive they're friends right God wants you to be satisfied in Him. And I believe when He's talking about this holy habitation, this city of God, I believe, and I'm not alone, I believe He's talking about the church. Because this is not something that's just privatized and individualized. There's a whole group of people here. I mean, the sons of Korah are singing this together. This is at a worship service. Together we remind one another of these truths. Where do we do that? We do that in the church, day to day, from house to house, in your community group. In your prayer time, when you're gathering, we have to remind each other of these truths. Listen, the city of God is the church. God sought her. God bought her. He is in the midst of her. And I believe this river, it's grace. It's a never-ending supply. Back in the ancient biblical times and ancient Middle East, the scariest thing that could happen if a city was laid siege against would be they would cut off your water supply. And then you were toast eventually, right? With no butter. (laughs) You were done. It's just a matter of time before. No water, no life. Surrender, wave the white flag. Maybe that's the picture here. God is saying, look, you don't have to worry. No matter what happens, there is a never-ending supply of peace and grace and love and stability. It's never going to run dry. There's nobody that can touch this. God says, I am in the midst of her. I am in the midst of her. It goes from this roaring, tumultuous ocean to this serene, tranquil river of grace feeding God's people that are safe and secure in their refuge with God in a fortress high above the panic and the chaos. We're only as secure as the thing that we tether our hope to. And that's God. And God is in the midst of this city. I mean, listen, guys, that's the answer to why are you not afraid? You know, one of the most well-known psalms, Psalm Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Why not? Because that's not how I roll. No, (laughs) that's not what it says. I'm just not about fear. No, that's not what it says. Because I'm above it. No, it doesn't say that either. That's not my personality type. Doesn't say that either, does it? What does it say? Because God is with me. All the difference in the world, guys. All the difference in the world. I have a toddler, and the don't, don't ask me why. I don't know how this happened, but he sleeps in my room every night in a crib. Don't ever do that, guys, if you can keep from it. Trust me. Just come talk to me afterwards. We'll, we'll have a good chat. Every night, this two-year-old wakes up in a panic, like Psalm 2. <laughs> Sirens and chopper lights. He wakes up, ah! He goes, Daddy, Daddy, water, toys, yogurt. He's like making all these demands. He, every night, you can hear it if you were in our house. Daddy, Daddy. And from, from the bed, I'll say, son, son, Tyler, Daddy's right here. Daddy's right here. Calm down. Don't be afraid. Everything's going to be okay. For the love of all that's good and holy, go back to sleep, right? When he hears my voice and he knows my dad in his little two-year-old brain my dad is about six feet from me i'm still gonna make demands for yogurt and toys and all that but i'm not afraid he's not afraid in fact he gets bold he goes want yogurt now it just changes his whole disposition and mine and you know we're a a lot like little two-year-old tyler aren't we just knowing and being and and god wanting us to know see i don't lay in the bed and chuckle and go i'm in here but i ain't telling him i want to see how scared he gets no i'm not doing that why Because I'm not going to torment my kid. I want him to know I'm in here, son. How many ways does God say that to us? I am with you. The Great Commission, one of the greatest endeavors God ever puts his people on. Go out into all the world and behold. Behold. Good luck. That's how it says. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Man, brothers, sisters, we need to hear that. Don't we? Because if God's not with us, oh my word, what are we doing? (laughs) It's too much for us we got to have him. It's like Moses. It's like, Lord, I'll go up if you go with me. <laughs> if you're not going with me, tell me, and I'm, here's my resignation sheet, right? God is a better refuge. He is a better river. And listen, point three, this is the last point. He is a better ruler. This is where it gets really interesting to me. I mean, the whole Psalm's interesting. But look at the last section here. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. Now just hit the pause button there. There's only a couple of commands. You know, if you're like me, the type I am, I'm looking for, give me something to do. <laughs> this is an awesome psalm, but what do I do? Tell, give me a commandment or an imperative. God knows my type. He goes, okay, Clayton, hang on a minute. Get down to verse eight. Come behold the works of the Lord. So this is a command. He's like, stop, say law, breathe in, look at that truth now. Come and behold my works. And you're like, okay, I want to see what God's doing. But man, it's kind of dark and sinister, honestly. Look at, look at this. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. Huh? You, you want me to look at that? He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Man, it's like, look at the carnage. Look at these mangled bodies and mutilated corpses, bloody and rotting everywhere. Look at this. Look at all these plagues I brought on Egypt. Check it out. You're like, what in the world? Why in the world would God... And that's the language here. I mean, it's the Old Testament. That's what what works of God is he talking about? Everything he's done. But you'd be wrong to just look at it in terms of look at the destruction. What he's saying is, look how committed I am to my people. Look how committed I am. Look what I did on their behalf. See, he did all of that for his people. The plagues were for Israel. That 185,000 Syrian soldiers that one angel of the Lord slaughtered in one night, that was to protect the Israelites. So God's not necessarily saying, look at the mangled corpses. He's saying, look how far I went. Look how committed I am. Look at my covenant with my people. I'm utterly committed to it no matter what it costs me. That's what he's saying. That is what he's saying. I think it was a... I don't always... And this is a big rabbit trail. I don't like Christian movies, period. I don't like the word Christian as an adjective. God didn't die for movies, and he didn't die for music. He didn't die for books. And I, I understand it's, 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 a, it's like describing a genre. But usually Christian movies to me are cheesy and unrealistic, okay? I'm just going to throw that out there. I've talked about it before. Um, but there is a Christian movie that's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, I think it's fireproof. Am I saying it right? Okay. The very beginning scene just resonated with me. Um, There's a guy and he's getting gas, I think, at a gas station and somebody carjacks his truck. They take off with his truck and this guy is like going, he's putting himself at risk and he seems to be over this truck. It's a nice truck and he's like, man, I got to go get that truck. He's chasing it. He almost gets ran over. He jumps in the back. He's swerving back and forth. The truck wrecks and runs off the road. And his buddy, another, this guy's a cop, turns out. His cop catches up with him and he's like, dude, what in the world are you doing? It's just a truck. Why are you you going to all these extremes just for a truck? And the guy looks at him and it's a king cab and he opens the back door and his infant is in the car seat in the back. And you're like, oh, dang. (laughs) Don't you love that aha moment in a movie like that? And I think that's what God maybe is trying to say in this psalm. Not look at all the stuff I did, look why I did it. Did that for you? You're the apple of my eye, the Bible says. Man, we have a hard time believing that, don't we? We have a hard time believing God could love somebody like us and be as utterly and radically committed to us as he is. He says, I will rejoice over you with loud singing and exult over you. You are mine. You belong to me. And I'm not going anywhere. I see, you to the, I see the worst part of your heart... I see your deeds. I see you to the the depths of your iniquity, but I love you to the heights. There's nothing God says you could ever do to change the way I feel about you because of Jesus. And that's why when he says, "Behold, behold my works, that's a command. He says, look, take a break from being overwhelmed by all the stuff out there and in here and meditate for a minute on all the things I've done for you. And guys, I will just say this as your pastor. I know pastors say this differently. Some pastors may get up and just simply say, hey, Come on, read your Bibles, guys. Read your Bibles. And there's a time and a place for that, but I want to explain why. (laughs) It's impossible to do what God is telling us here if we are more overwhelmed and distracted and we're just binge-watching this or that uh, or just really captivated by our devices. And you look at the end of a year and the beginning of a new year, and it's like, man, how much time do you really spend letting God chase you with this truth and shove it into your mind and heart and let it dominate and saturate your thinking. If it's like, oh, just just dip in here and there. I'm telling you, man, you're going to be prone to be anxious when trouble comes. This is not me scolding you, okay? I don't know how much you read your Bible or there's different ways to encounter biblical truth. You can listen to it on audio or you can read it or you can have somebody read it to you. I don't know. Um, but behold the works of God. You don't do that. And, and look, think back on your own life. I think there's liberty to... Apply it this way. Think back on your own life all the times that God was faithful to you. That's all the psalmist is doing. It's just inspired when he did it, right? Think back right now, Christian, all the times that God has shown faithfulness to you. I'm thinking of two people in this congregation that I didn't think would live, and they're sitting here right now serving God, worshiping God, doing amazing things for the kingdom. Oh, my word. (laughs) That That could fix the rest of my day. Isn't God merciful, man, that we're even alive? We have fresh oxygen. We have a church family. Many of us have families that care about us and love us, and the ones that don't, you got this family, right? Behold the works of God. But that's not the only command, and I'll close with this. This is the best part of the psalm, and I've talked myself out of time to really unpack it for you, so let's close. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to say a couple words, okay? (laughs) Some of you were like, I wish we would close. Verse 10, here's the second command. Are you ready? Behold the works of God. Second command, be still and know that I am God. Wow. I love that. That's my favorite. That's my, one of my favorite things in all of Scripture is verse 10 and 11 in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. And you know, this doesn't, again, this is not just... Get still and get really quiet. You know what this literally means in Hebrew? Let go. Let go. Not in one of those Keswick movement, let go and let God don't do nothing. Not that. It's hey, you're white knuckling things in your life that right now you're not letting God be God. You're trying to control and manipulate people and events and circumstances. Turn loose, go, 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 pry, those, pry those fingers off. Let God be God. You've got to be still, you've got to behold His works. And then you've got to be still and you've got to let go. You've got to let God be on the throne. You're not. You don't belong there. Crawl off that throne, pry your white-knuckled fingers off those parts of your life, and be still. You know, talking about Martin Luther, um, he was a reformer, man. He was amazing. And you hear all about his life anytime you read about the Reformation. You probably haven't heard of Philip Melanchthon. You know who that was? That was his partner in crime. That was his buddy. That was his scholar friend that was a lot smarter than him and helped him translate the New Testament into German from Greek. And Melanchthon was a very anxious man. Very anxious. And Luther would always kind of joke around with him. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life too. But Melanchthon would come around and he would say, Oh, Luther, the emperor is mad. The pope has made all these declarations and edicts. They're after you. You know what Luther would say? He would say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Poking fun of this buddy, but not poking fun. I hope you have a friend like that in your life. Oh my goodness. Oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay the bills? This health thing. That, 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 that. Let Philip cease to rule the world. And then you know what he would say? This is my favorite part. God. Sorry. He would say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th psalm and let the devil do his worst. I really like that. Don't you? Come let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. And look, when the tornadoes are finished and the government shutdown is done and the the crisis is over and the dust settles, you know what? God's still going to be on His throne and we're still going to belong to Him and He is going to belong to us and we'll be all the better because of it. That's all this psalm is saying. Be still and know that I am God and in consequence you are not. And I am with you and I'm a better refuge, I'm a better river, and I'm a better ruler. (laughs) than you are, or than anything else you tether your life to. Be still and know that I am God. Stop white-knuckling your life. One of my favorite devotionals is called the Mockingbird Devotional, and it says this, Stillness is the fruit of recognizing our inability. Stillness in a world of incessant human effort is unnatural, but it is God's good gift to His people. Stillness is what we find at the foot of the cross, where we admit our impotence, That means lack of power. And anticipate the revelation of God's power. The more we depend on God, the more dependable we will find Him to be. How can all this happen? How can God be so accessible to us? How can He be so near? How can He pledge and commit Himself to us knowing who we really are? How can that happen? That we're not shaken and the world is. It was because of this, friends. Think of the cross. Because there... Jesus was shaken. There was a cosmic disturbance. And it was the wrath and the fury of Almighty God. And I know know, it's not popular to talk about. Even in a church it's not sometimes. But God's love is not cheap. It's not cheap. It cost Him something really costly. Okay, It cost God His Son's life. Jesus was violently shaken. In fact, the whole earth was shaken and darkness came at noon... In the Middle East, when the sun was at its apex, and you can check the books, there was no eclipse then, okay? I don't care what, how history revisions this. All of earth was darkened and shaken because God forsook His Son. You know, we had this truth, this promise. God's a very present help to those in need. God was not a very present help to Jesus when He was on the cross. In fact, God said, I'm forsaking you. I'm turning my back on you and putting a curse on you. Because the Bible says in Galatians, does it not? He became a curse for us. Cursed is him who hangs on a tree. See, the only reason we can confess and celebrate all these wonderful, amazing, radical truths today is because Jesus was violently shaken on the cross. God the Father turned his back on him. That's what we all deserve. But God gave us a substitute, somebody to stand in our place, to pay the penalty for sin and to offer us his perfect, stainless life. And listen guys, that's the story that God is chasing you with this morning. He wants that story to be a more compelling narrative than the one you're listening to. He wants that to shape your outlook on life and your perspective, not whatever else it is you're listening to. And I hope it does.